I've learned that what it sometimes feels like for folks who aren't used to it is it feels reckless and it feels like you're flying by the seat of your pants. And so like now the role that I see myself as taking is being a little bit of that like future Sherpa, right? To be like, all right, I'm not, by no means am I trying to baby you or hold your hand, but let's walk this together. Like I, here's the space and the permission and the kind of like the safe space to be able to, to just meander see what might happen and that's the thing that I really love about like stories too because we can and this is how I actually describe it to folks who operate in the space of like a b testing and like prototypes and stuff like that I'm like look stories are a way to prototype possible futures right like how cool you can just throw things out there and see how different characters run into one another and how different plot lines might run into one another and how different signals might evolve and I remember going to a talk, William Gibson had, was giving a talk like right around when his newest book came out. I think it was like last year, a year before last. And he was talking about some of his character development. And one of the things he said, he was like, well, I just threw these characters in here and I wanted to see how they, if they would play nice together. And they didn't. And so I killed off one of them. And I was like, that's, it's so, that to me is like how I think about stories in general, right? Is there are these, these characters and these like artifacts and these plot lines and they have lives of their own. And my job is to just see where those things go and then translate what that means. My name is Radha Mystery. I currently lead the foresight practice for a company called Autodesk. And I also teach part-time at the transdisciplinary design program at Parsons. This is episode 28 of the Near Future Laboratory podcast. And I'm your host, Julian Bleeker. This episode kicks off a series of conversations with folks who operate in and around what we might call, I guess for simplicity's sake, futures. I'm calling the series um, Futurist Talking to Futurist on Zoom. This is just where I have a casual uh, coffee conversation with other practitioners, folks who focus their work on imagining possibilities, imagining other possible adjacent worlds, doing future design or who just ply their trade just a little bit in some other near future space. I'm not precisely sure who else does these kinds of things, and that's the point of starting a series like this. It widens the aperture on the practice and hopefully focuses in on the key elements in all that which is emphasizing the evolutionary significance of the human imagination and its existential importance to helping us work our way towards more habitable, peaceful futures. This first of the Futurist Talking to Futurist on Zoom series is a conversation I had with Radha Mystery. One of the reasons I was keen to talk to Radha is we had just recently been introduced and the context is relevant, which is this. I saw a job posting for a role as a foresight strategist on her team, and I was curious to learn more. I didn't know that Autodesk had a foresight team, and I wanted to know who they were and how they worked, and would it be fun to work with them? I also became curious to learn more because foresight sounds like something close to where I generally like to play and work, and in the previous seven or eight years, I really hadn't been operating in that space as I was building my startup. So the question for me was, where do I like to work and play? It's in that space where the imagination is translated into possibilities, and those possibilities are then mirrored, materialized in some form. That's why I sometimes refer to myself as a product designer who makes products for the future. I was both curious about Radha's professional trajectory, as well as learning more about how teams like hers operate and think and imagine possible futures. Okay, before we get to our conversation, I want to ask for your help. 
I produce this podcast because I feel it has value. If it brings a little bit of value to your own practice and ways of thinking about the imagination in the future, please consider supporting the show. You can do so over at patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. It's really a tiny, tiny amount, like the equivalent of buy me two decent cups of coffee a month. And uh, it keeps me going, mostly and largely because it shows that you care as much as I do. I produce, edit, schedule, wrangle audio files and all of that on my own. It's not a big operation here, mostly me and Chewy the dog and my laptop. So please support the show. Also, sign up for the Design Fiction Newsletter, my bi-weekly newsletter on related topics. I keep that short and sweet, and it's less an aggregation of links than reflections on the practice and mindset of the futurist. You can sign up at buttondown.email slash designfiction. Finally, there's the Near Future Laboratory Discord server, where we have this beautiful, high-signal, low-noise community of folks who are deeply interested in all these topics. And if you sign up and introduce yourself, chances are we'll end up having a chat. I'm not saying that any kind of bonus, but I really enjoy meeting and talking to folks who are passionate about topics in and around design fiction. Just last week, I had talked to about a half dozen folks, and it's one of the most exciting parts of my week, meeting new, highly engaged, motivated, eager folks and hear what they're working on. Okay, enough of that. Now here's my conversation with Radheim Mystery, Strategic Foresight at Autodesk. There was a time when I was thinking a lot and doing a lot and understanding different ways of imagining new possible worlds, futures stuff. And I was coming into this understanding of what it meant to think about it, think about what the future is just as a normal human, Mm -hmm. what's possible, what's next. And then I entered a kind of more like commercial context, like a different kind of human where it's like, oh, people, other people want to do that too. But usually for like pragmatic context, hey, we're, we're in an organization that is, that is, is, is to a certain degree, it's like needs to freshen itself, like needs to exist in these futures mm-hmm. step after step, year after year, quarter after quarter. And so, well, we can't get away with just doing the same thing over and over again. So we better have certain point of view or perspective or an ability to see into that future and try to imagine what we might be like as an organization in that. And oftentimes that was just like, it boiled down to, yeah, let's think expansively, but ultimately our question is, what do we make next Mm -hmm. that will sustain the organization and sustain the people who work here and the shareholders and all those kinds of things. And I saw those two quite different things, but exciting that there were organizations that were like, hey, we'll hire you in order to do that. And it seemed like, oh, this is amazing. This is like the best of both worlds. Like I love imagining. And it seems like there's someone who's willing to make positions and roles for people who also are able to do that and, and that you could have your cake and eat it too. Right, right. Right. And, and, and it, it seemed like, and maybe this was just like, sometimes when you're in, when you're in something, it seems, particularly at that time, it seemed like quite special in a way. There almost wasn't a way to describe it. It was like this, it was like, it almost felt like I could be wrong, but it felt like it was like a burgeoning, like vanguard practice or discipline for the organizations that were expansive in the way they understood that they were doing all kinds of cool stuff. Like they were like pulling in anthropologists, 
because they understand culture and they can give a different perspective. They were pulling in like science fiction writers in order to help them imagine mm-hmm. possible worlds. They were, it seemed like they were going into different kind of academic disciplines to understand how does time work? How does the future work? And how do you understand and project yourself into these kinds of things? And did that for, for a number of years. And then it feels like I almost took a break from it because I started a company mm-hmm. that was not doing that. I was just making a product and for seven or eight years. And then I came out of that and I was like, okay, so what's going on now? What should I do? And it seemed like that practice became super disciplined. Yeah. I have to say it's been a little bit confusing like a number of people are wondering it's like what is the practice now that I think sometimes it's called foresight yeah and and then you and I would dig in a little bit and and I would be confused by what the expectation was and what the role was and also a little bit confused because the the roles were they were defined in such a way that it almost felt like constrained Mm -hmm. this is your lane this is your lane and Mm -hmm. it just felt it felt a little bit just for me and it might be I'm pulling a bunch of my earlier understanding of it, it seemed to be, well, I'll just say this to be provocative, like too disciplined for its own good. Mm-hmm. Like it, like imagination doesn't want lanes. Right. Imagination wants like a big meadow with a bunch of elephant paths going in different directions. Right. And I'm going to get on this one. You know, no one's going to say, I don't know if you should get on that one. That seems to lead over to that weird thing over there. And I don't know if we want to. You're doing it wrong. You're, yeah. you're imagining possibilities wrong. Yeah. You're not following the rules of imagination. I think this is why I have a little bit of an aversion to toolkits too, because I think, and I don't, there's nothing wrong with toolkits, but me personally, I feel like that's not the first thing I like to land on. And that's not how I like to define a practice. Mm. So if somebody comes to us, to me and says, Hey, I saw this toolkit that you have. And I saw that you do these things. Yeah. What that says to me is that's wonderful. That's great. That means you found it useful and valuable in some way. But on the other hand, if, if the practice is meant to think of what is possible, if the practice is meant to understand what is changing, if the practice is meant to be evolving, then by definition, a toolkit in some way is a bit of a stagnation, Mm. right? And if that's the case, then we're not necessarily, then we're staying in our lane. We're following rules. And I think it's, like I said, there's value in having a common language for people to understand what you do and having that touch point to grasp onto. But I think for me personally, in just thinking about futures and like foresight practice, I think the challenge is, and as much as we help others to come from this place of like agency around the future, and maybe from this place of feeling like, okay, we don't have to resign to the future happening to us. How do we ensure that doesn't happen to me or to us as practitioners who are tasked with thinking about this? Yeah. And I suppose I'm, I wonder, you bring up like toolkits and approaches there that related to this is. Concern might be overstating, but I guess it is a concern without raising any alarms. When a practice begins to, I don't know, it's like, it's like reify or, or something where you can, I used to joke, it's not a very funny joke, but it, it, it's helpful for me. Like anytime, like a, a, a particular kind of um, practice or, or, or job or something 
anytime it makes its way into situation comedy, like a television show, then I'm like, oh, it's cooked. Like, right. <laughs> it's mainstream. It's washed. Have gotten a hold of it, <laughs> and they're doing you know, funny bits and sketches on Saturday Night Live or something like that. Right. Okay, you know, time to move along. And I, I semi, I think the thing that that joke is meant to, the bad joke is meant to represent is that, yeah, when it's become, when it's become mainstream, when it's, when you can get a certification in it through a four hour online course or something like that, then it feels like it's just become a, I don't know what it is. Something has gone a little bit off the rails. I think it becomes formulaic. I think it becomes this thing where the aim is to solve a problem. And the thing that originally, I started out in architecture. So I started out, my background is in architecture. I'm not a licensed architect. So I'm not officially allowed to call myself an architect, but that's my background. And the thing that I really loved about architecture was this, it straddled the two worlds of having rules, right? Because you have to adhere to building codes and gravity and all of these things. But then on the other side, there was this notion that you could imagine possibility and you could invent new design language, right? You had to think about, well, I'm designing this thing today in whatever year, but 50 years from now, this machine in the ground is still going to be standing. What does the world look like around that machine? Right. So you get to start to anticipate the future. You get to start to think about what the, how the context changes, how people evolve, what their needs might be. And that to me was really interesting was this like unbounded, unboxed approach to thinking about what might be possible. Yeah. And it was purely to me, it was like, I was the worst architecture student because I hated when professors would be like, all right, so what's the structural system? I was like, I don't know how it stands, but this is the- look, I do it. There's a line here and there's a line. Right. There. Right. <laughs> I have no idea how it stands, but here's 50 diagrams on the process. And here's an entire story about how it feels. And like, here's like the world that I allowed myself to build around this thing. And I think there's something so beautiful in that unrestrained, unbounded and giving yourself the permission to do that and giving yourself permission to not have to find a problem to solve. Right. And to just think about, well, just to speculate, like what might be out there? Right. And to give yourself the space and time to say like that in itself is valuable. And I think what I often struggle with as, as a practitioner in foresight is this, is that tension between wanting to just like frolic and speculation all day, but then also having to be part of the capitalist machine, right? Like people have to find value in what you do. Yeah. And I think what has happened, and I and I know folks who have established some really great foresight programs and trainings and all of that. And I think there's nothing lost in having more people understand the language we use to talk about the future. Mm-hmm. However, this notion that it becomes a kit of parts that you can put one plus one together and that will always equal two, to me is a little bit, you lose the magic of mm-hmm. thinking about the future a little bit. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot there. Let's nerd out about architecture for a minute. Sure. So always. Yeah. Like the way you described described your kind of the way you were drawn to it, I, I can totally empathize. I've got no architecture background except that I think there was, there was something about what you described, like the ability to imagine worlds and 
and worlds often in culture, structures, effervesce, all these kind of characteristics of the world, and which I think architecture signals just so powerfully in the styles and in the fact that they are you can be powerful structures just the fact that they were that they were a translation of a, of someone's imagination however expansive mm-hmm. in material form mm-hmm. like, of a moment in time right yeah. that's meant to then transcend that moment in time yeah. and the the way that i describe like architectural artifacts is to me though they're future artifacts Right, because you're not just thinking about, like I said, you're not just thinking about the the moment in which you're designing the thing or the moment in which it's constructed. You're thinking about what will this look like and feel like 20, 30, 50, if we're lucky, 100 years from now. Right. And I remember being an architecture student and having the opportunity to go and stay a study in Rome for a few months and going inside the Pantheon. And thinking, I wonder if 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, if folks knew that like I would be, or could foresee that I would be having this experience standing under the Oculus seeing rain come down. And like that to me was just so profound. And I was like, how do I do more of this part of architecture? So when you say this part, can you be more precise? Yeah. How do I do more of the part where I'm really thinking about how, what the future is going to look like, what the, how the world is going to change, what role this thing, this artifact, this world that I have created, what role that will play in people's lives. That has always been like, I was always into kind of like the paper architecture, speculative kind of architecture movements of the fifties and the sixties and the seventies. Some of the more kind of mainstream ones like Archigram and Super Studio and the Metabolist and then the folks from Ant Farm, right? Who are just like... So funny you mentioned that. I I literally, an hour ago, I pulled off of... Because uh, I was just, I, I'm not often here at the studio and I was just kind of, I love just like going through my books and I just, I was like, man. And I remember the guy, I remember the fellow who gave this to me for my birthday, like 15 years ago. And it was just, it was a beautiful gift because he just read something into me. And I only knew peripherally about Ant Farm, certainly not enough to speak much about them. Sorry, go on. No, no I only knew about them because I believe a couple of the guys went to Tulane, which is where I studied architecture. And then they were in the Bay, which is where I lived for a while. I've recently moved down to Los Angeles, but, but I just, again, I just love this idea that the entire, the practice was based on not really thinking about rules and just like Mm. letting your brain wander and saying, well, what are we curious about today? Like, where do we go? What can we make? That's what I want the practice to tap into. And I think maybe now that your, your distinction or just the thread through this conversation is on the one hand, like knowing that step-by-step guides for most of anything, will you'll wind up where you expect. Exactly. Even if the thing is meant to say, this is going to expand your mind and, and lead you to unexpected and anticipated places. Step one, get a giant piece right. of paper. Step two, it, it, it's going to, it, the programmatic aspect of it isn't maybe necessarily, I could be totally wrong, but it isn't necessarily conducive to the kind of unstructured imagination that puts you in a place of doing things like allowing thoughts and ideas and imagery and your instinct to lead you someplace where it's, wow, how did I get from, I wonder what would happen if to now I'm in this whole, this whole different kind of universe and that meandering, finding the, if we want to call it like maybe tools or resources or approaches or ways of opening up the imagination to those unanticipated, unexpected possibilities so that you, yeah, you have a, 
kind of little ant farm moment as you're mm-hmm. trying to imagine the world. And also maybe part of it is like letting go of the expectation that you're, that you're looking for a solution. Yeah. And that you're on a path and not sure what's going to happen when you exit the bramble, where will you be? But I, okay, so, and so maybe this is something I take for granted as well. Like maybe the notion of being comfortable with uncertainty, right? Isn't something that, not to say, oh, I'm special and amazing because I, I will be the first person to say, I don't know anything, but what I have learned over even just the last decade of operating in the foresight space is not everyone is comfortable with an approach that doesn't end up in outcomes and deliverables, right? And that you just say, hey, trust me blindly, mm-hmm. we're going to explore and steep ourselves in uncertainty. Yeah. Like that. Ha- that's jarring for some people. And I understand that. And I think for folks where it isn't something you look forward to. I love it. Like I love operating in unstructured environments. I crave that, which is why I'm like, yeah, the worst student, the worst corporate citizen, all of those things. Right. But I've been lucky enough to have folks around me who like tolerate that. But I think there are, I think for folks who maybe aren't as comfortable and like just letting their brains run, or maybe don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. I think there's some value in in that a little bit of the like the prescriptive like here's the path forward the thing i will say though is i wish that some of these approaches methods tools resources whatever they are i wish that some of them would get to the place where we say and now divergence is the goal mm. Right. And the end is not to converge on a solution or converge on a problem set or come away with like your 10 most important sticky notes. Right. The goal is actually to be in a state of mind where I have learned to be comfortable with uncertainty. And I understand, I I feel more conversational in the language that we use to talk about the future. So it's to me, like, I think what I call like foresight fluency is more important than having, than being able to memorize the rules that you must abide by to think about the future. Yeah, mindset. What is that foresight? I think foresight fluency is, well, there's like the official, there's my like official kind of thinking around it, which is, It's the ability to look at all of the noise in the world and be able to quiet the noise and amplify interesting signals of change Mm. and have that instinct or learn the instinct to then connect the dots in interesting ways. And that doesn't always, not everyone has that. And I find this even with some of my students, I find this with some of my colleagues, like that is oftentimes a learned behavior, right? To be able to quiet the noise and amplify interesting weak signals. Um, and then I think the key aspect to that too is then to be able to communicate those connecting of the dots in a way that other people can then relate to or have a, just have a conversation around or build a vision around or build an understanding around. That to me is foresight fluency. So a couple of things in that. One is... Uh... How much, what role does instinct play in that? Because oftentimes instinct is, sometimes it's prized. Sometimes in some contexts, it's, I guess, maybe seen as like less valuable. 
I don't know. It's a funny normative word. Like you got good instincts. And sometimes it's, no, don't use your instincts. Use the, follow, follow the steps. Even if your instincts say that's not going to fit in that spot, let's just try to make it happen. Yeah. And I think again, like this goes back to the individual, right? Because I remember being starting out early because I, I discovered foresight as a thing you could do and get paid for after I finished architecture school, after I had been practicing for a while, after I moved to London, <laughs> went to grad school again. And so for me, I think I remember being around kind of colleagues and practitioners who had already been in the space for a long time and just being in awe of how they were able to just look at things in their environment and be like, and create a storyline, just give you that two second flash fiction of what the future might be. And at the time I had a curiosity around it, but I don't feel like I had the instinct to be able to say, here are the ways in which you can connect the dots and here's the provocation around the future. And I think that I truly believe like on some level, it's a learned behavior yeah. to be able to say, well, this feels like noise. And this feels like signal. And here is just something worth considering for the future. I think that instinct is learned. But I think it also takes a very specific type of person to like want to learn that instinct and be comfortable in the process that it takes to build that. And maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. That's just in my own personal experience. I felt that because I look at it now and I've had like students come up to me before and be like, like, how did you just like, how do you look at a signal and come up with a possible future so quickly? And I have to tell them, I was like, when I first started, it wasn't that quick, right? Because the data points that you had, your brain wasn't, my brain didn't feel like it was being exercised in that way, even though, again, I was curious about it, but I, it wasn't being exercised in the manner to say I was watching television and an advertisement came up where Bob Ross is selling me Mountain Dew and my brain goes in 7,000 different directions of what that means for the future of deep fakes and the media and entertainment industry, right? 10, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I don't know if my brain would have done that. I think my brain would have been like, oh, there's something weird here, but I don't know if my brain would have been able to articulate a storyline that would lead me into a possible future. Yeah. Related, so if it can be learned, um, do, do you have, what are your thoughts about it being taught? Like, how do you teach it in expansive imagination? Yeah, this is so interesting because this is a, I, I, sorry? I'm, not that there's a specific answer, but, but I, I feel like for a bit, I've been, I kind of got, got caught into this thing where I feel like I've been saying it a few times, like imagination should be taught. There should be like, just like you take social studies and civics and history and math, there should be like AP imagination. What do you got this afternoon? I got my imagination class with Mr. Larkin. Oh, cool. See you after lunch. Who's Mr. Larkin? <laughs> Mr. Larkin was my fifth grade teacher. <laughs> I love that. And I love the notion of, God, I wish there was a class in imagination. Like, could there, like, I like to, speaking of imagine possible futures, I like to imagine that you, me, and, and other people like us begin just like a little bit of a, like a modest movement. Look, mm -hmm. that's way, there are a bunch of ways out of the current kind of whatever existential crises. There's some really mechanical, pragmatic things, like maybe Elon will write a big check and we'll have a giant carbon harvesting ventilator put in place someplace. But also it's, well, what is the systemic problem? 
and part of what part of what I believe or, or think is that we've lost our ability to imagine change. And, and part of that comes from the downside of education curriculums that teach people to be very specific things with very specific ways of um, behaving and acting and understanding what is the right thing to do versus no, don't do that. Like you mentioned architecture and ironically, my, my architects are roaming around my house and I hope and believe that they're certified because I would like the house to stay standing. <laughs> of course, you'd yeah. like to feel safe. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah. I, I good. You're state certified. Assume what's going on, but at the same time, there is that other side of architecture which you describe so beautifully, which is it's about imagining possibility in the form of built the built environment. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's almost like I, I want. I would like to know that there's that is as prized as the, yes, we need engineers and we need doctors who know what they're doing and we need on down the list. And also there's this beautiful path of things that you can do where it's like the ability to, all the things you described, to be able to quiet the noise, identify the thing that the themes that seem encouraging or feel like there's a whiff of possibility there in order to, yeah, just imagine new ways of being. Yeah, no, and I love that. I think part of, I think here's the thing is right now, there are courses in imagination. They're just not publicly available to everyone, right? Like you, that's what private art universities teach. I teach studio and the entire, I co-teach with Elliot Montgomery and our studio is really based on future studies and understanding what are the differences and similarities between foresight and speculative design and discursive design. And what are the different vectors that's, or lenses that students might use to build their own practice in one of these adjacent spaces? And imagination is one of those things. Not everyone has access to that. And the folks that are in the class are the ones that chose to be in a program that allows them to explore right. things like imagination, that allows them to understand or learn about. One of the things that that we do initially in at the beginning of the studio term is to say, here are some of the tools and the methods that we use. The beautiful thing about the field that we operate in is this is not the end all be all, right? So maybe you'll find a new tool or methodology. Maybe you'll invent one. Maybe you'll challenge one. Take these lenses that we are providing you as a critical kind of approach to future studies and turn them on their heads, right? Like half of it, I think, is giving folks permission to say, I don't have to come into this environment. And and the test is not knowing that one plus one is two. The test is saying, well, what else could one plus one equal? And that for that to be okay. A lot of, I think, primary and secondary education values this, you know, essentially like memorizing and regurgitating things on exams, right? And if you're really lucky, you have a teacher who's, that's not important. I really want you to be more well-versed in being imaginative and being comfortable in uh, change and being well-versed in uncertainty. But the systems that we operate in don't necessarily value that. And that's not, you're not going to get into college because you were really good at imagining, right? No one's scoring you on imagination. Sad. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I think that's so sad. Like, I, I think there's so much value to be placed in question learning in this idea that there is value in just coming up with really interesting questions and allowing ourselves to be expansive in what the possibilities might be coming off of those points of inquiry. But that's not how you make really good workers for 
the kind of economies that we operate in. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? That's it. Like the education, like education in the, I went to school in, I went to public school in Los Angeles County. And then I went to architecture school in New Orleans. And then I went to art school in London. And each of those experiences were very different in their own ways. But the thing that you learn being in, in elementary and high school is how to do, how to be a really good test taker. Yeah. And I think I had some teachers who saw that, understood it, got us our baseline requirements, and then spent the rest of the year saying like, all right, let's set that aside. You're going to be fine. Now I want you to kind of read this book and let's unpack it in all of the most brilliant ways. And so I think like I got lucky to have educators who were willing to say, I get the system is messed up, but that's not always the case. Right. What's the place in, in between then? Because so you, you're in an interesting position because you to fill in the blank everything you just described. And then where what are the ways in which, well, let's so do you believe that consciousness, the imaginative consciousness is of value to the the endpoint that you describe, which is these are the things that the the kind of I guess the world of commerce needs. We don't need imaginative people. Let's let's leave Hollywood out of it. But although they could probably use some more imaginative people. Agreed. <laughs> the there are a few. So then, where does the bright, creative, imaginative person fill in, fit in in a world of mid-level program managers and full-stack developers, which as as bright and, and creative and intelligent as they might be, basically they're just making full-stack web nozzles of some very typical description. They're not. They're not like creating a world from their imagination that creating the, they're recreating the world as it exists. Same thing as like last year, but we need it in blue this time. But, and so here's the thing though, is, is there space for, is there space for that to evolve? And one of the things that, you know, that my, my colleague Elliot says all the time is like, there isn't, there are things that foresight and speculative design are good for. And there are things that it's not good for. Um, what it's not good for is deciding whether the button on a remote is meant to be green or red. There's no speculation in that. There's no discussion that needs to happen there. But I do think that even in the most kind of, even in the disciplines where seemingly there might not be room for new possibilities, I think that there are because otherwise, because even, I don't know, a hundred years ago, there wasn't maybe such a thing as a full stack developer. Certainly not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I think part of, I think there is room for speculation and I understand I'm very biased and perhaps a little just like stuck in my own silo, but I think there's room for speculation in everything. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate, I, I appreciate that for sure. And so how do you just like pragmatically, how do you make the case for that to the the decision makers of an organization that are like, hey, look, I got my head full of stuff that I need to do by the end of the quarter. Why are you telling me this stuff? Why are you showing me this peculiar sequence of slides with weird buildings on it and 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 and, and people? What kind of clothes are they wearing? And why do they have right? What, what, <laughs> what does solar punk have to do with like us meeting our, yeah, yeah, our really. Q one? Like wait, so a movement <laughs> by a bunch of people and right. What is this tropical futures thing you're talking about? And so, well, so this is the elevator pitch, right? Is like, 
folks who are who, folks who are tasked with kind of steering an organization with hitting KPIs with whatever it is, they don't necessarily want to be in a position where, like I said before, they're having to resign to the future happening to them. Right. And so wouldn't it be amazing if you could have a practice, if you could have a way to reduce your blind spots, to have some sense of agency, maybe some sense of ownership over what happens to the future to understand change and not only that, to capitalize on that change, right? And again, this is where it goes from being that thing where we're just like allowing ourselves to in a very unconstrained manner, just think of what is possible. And we start to hone in on that. If I look at like where I operate on a spectrum between sci-fi and speculation all the way down to like strategy, which is the world that I tend to have to operate in. It's that space that starts to get a little bit closer to strategy. And I think the most effective I am is when I can bounce between those two ends. But the folks who are beholden to metrics want to know that there's a translation mechanism to move from these really cool things that we're seeing out in the world that maybe don't make sense right away to, well, what does this mean for my strategic intent and realization plan? Yeah. And can you give me an example of of that connection between... The speculative science fiction weird nozzle that you, you you stumbled across or have reflected upon and that other end to let's say let's say a an, an open-minded head of strategy who has to re- owes someone something in order to be a value to them and that something is, is probably pragmatic yeah so we can move from looking at how K-pop fans operate in, in online communities and think about that as like a learning community, right? There are folks who don't speak Korean, who are learning Korean because they want to learn the lyrics of their favorite songs from these K-pop bands. We can look at even just last year, the first year of the pandemic, I can't believe we're like in year three of the pandemic. <laughs> My daughter has never known a world outside of the pandemic. The way that folks are operating in like funerals and birthdays and protests and like Animal Crossing and Fortnite and things like that. We can look at these things, which seem very unrelated to, for example, the tech company that I work for that makes tools for people who design and make things. But the thing we can glean from that is There are entirely new ways of learning that are popping up. There are entirely new ways of communication and connecting with one another that are popping up. And so now what do these new behaviors that we're observing in these online communities where you're no longer beholden to physical boundaries of geography to connect with folks, right? The internet is in most respects, a boundless space. What does that mean for the ways that we're thinking about our tools? Right. So what does that mean for the way that we think about how files are uploaded between countries or like how an architect might use Revit or how a student who doesn't want a person who doesn't want to go to a four year university, but wants to learn how to be an architect. Can they just do that through the tools that that we create through kind of micro credentialing or whatever it might be. And so part of it is really like looking at is going out there, seeing what's out there to me, like nerding out on all of that stuff. And then having to translate it back into, well, here's a thing we're already doing. Here's how we see that thing evolving. This is what we're seeing out in the world signaling to us that this thing needs to evolve in this way. And now how do we actually make that happen? Yeah. And I think, It's the same for what we saw with 
I don't know, like robots on construction sites and what that might look like. How does that change the way that we have to think about how our tools communicate the design of buildings? Because now if it's not just about humans designing buildings, if it's about these cobot teams or whatever it is, what does that mean for construction documents? Yeah. Machine readable construction. Right. Yeah. What does that mean for like how we even train construction workers? What does that mean for the future of trust in these spaces and IP? And so these are, when you start to bring in all of these questions that folks maybe don't have the time to think about, there's, there's people see, oh, there's value in this because these are blind spots. These are what we call it critical uncertainties. Yeah. And would it, would it be, so the, so let's say someone can imagine, yeah, I've heard about these robot things just use a robot example, seems to be a lot going on in that space. So I can imagine that there will be a world in which we use um, robots in construction. See, totally see the benefit. Essentially, it would be like having whatever. It's, it's, it's a crane plus. It's, more, it's a crane only more or whatever. Just to give, just thinking of the crane as a robot with, or a crane with, with some kind of other intelligence attached to it. And is it that, it, it seems what you're saying is that closing the gap between that big idea and it's okay. It's implementation. Like, how do we actually do that? Not in it, not just in a technical, well, maybe partially in a technical sense. It's, okay. Let's actually go into that world and try to imagine this crane trying to do what it's going to do. How's it going to do it? And how's it going to behave? And what language is it going to speak? And how is a human agent going to interact with it and engage it? And well, yeah, I guess to me, I guess what I'm saying is like that that's the part that I feel like that's where an expansive imagination is able to unpack those kinds of things where maybe otherwise you might just be like, well, it just will, someone will figure it out and won't know specifically like the, what would people, what would Philip K. Dick write about the, the robot on a construction site? And like all those little things that would be like in the kind of dark PK Dick humor might be actually, yeah, that's a good point. I know it's just a story, but why, why the robot went on strike. Like, what the heck is up with that? Is there a world in which robot intelligence is organized? Right. And maybe it's not, maybe that's like, that's like a, a little bit of a, maybe that's a slightly dark humor, but at the same time, it's okay. It might not be that they organize, but it might be that the network of them get hacked. Right. Thinking about or that? are they our new customers? Right. But you said something interesting. It was like, oh, someone will figure that out. And my question is, well, why can't that be us? So that's, you know, yeah. So I, that's, that's right. Like, that's, why can't that be us? And I think, and you go to most, most folks in a leadership position and you say, well, why can't that be us? There's value here. And most of the time they're going to be curious about that. Mm-hmm. Right. As long as it's aligned with kind of the long-term vision of where they believe the company needs to go. But I think, I think part of it too, is not just seeing what you want to happen moving forward. But like you said, maybe the robots go on strike, being able to anticipate what you maybe don't want happening, right? right? And being able to mitigate against those things as well. And then those are the interesting things. It's not, I'm a big believer in saying it's really not just about, I like to challenge folks to not always go to the dark place when we're thinking about, but I think there's value in exploring both sides and in, in finding a, and kind of thinking about, well, what's the world in which like robots don't take over and we figure out ways to be friends and they don't go on strike and they don't hack our systems, whatever it is, right? What's that world look like? And, but at the same time, like, what if they do, right? Like what if, and then what do we do about it? I think one of the really, one of the things that I really like about and hope to perpetuate in the way that I think about the future is 
what can I do to ensure that the future doesn't forget people? Because I think a lot of times, at least in the space that I operate in, so much of the focus is around the technology or like the thing you make. And I think, I don't know for my, and this is for myself, it's almost like a note to self where it's just where I'm having to remind myself that at the end of the day, what we're also trying to do is ensure that there's a, there's a space, there's a place for us right. in what we're envisioning. And I think that's important. And I think that's also part of where that foresight fluency comes in, right? How do we ensure that, that the future doesn't forget people mm-hmm. in all of this? And I think things like the metaverse, as curious as I am about it, and I, it's, it's so hyped right now, everyone's talking about it, right? But you could argue that we've been operating in these kind of virtual environments, like with Zoom and text and all of these things forever now. This is not necessarily new in some respects, but I feel like in some ways we're moving further and further away from ourselves as like these kind of embodied beings with blood and skin and muscles and bones. And that's the piece that always brings me back to kind of architecture. Because to me, it's yes, you can be building buildings and I realize I'm very much meandering right now, but this is just how my brain works. But yes, you can be building buildings in virtual spaces. And I'm starting to see that happening more and more now, which is really interesting. And there are like architects who will, who have made careers out of critiquing the built environments inside of video games and things like that, which I think is hilarious and amazing. But we still occupy this planet. There's still work to be done out here. I think my work is to ensure that there's still, there's a space out here in the world, in the physical world. You just made me imagine a world in which, because so the archetype of my, my grandfather was a coal miner. My dad was a coal miner. I'll be a coal miner. Good, steady work, raise a family and the company took care of them and, and all that kind of stuff. Could you imagine like the story, but that's, that happens with a Google or an Apple. Right. right. We're, we're, and, but it, and it is a little bit, the company is a little bit long in the tooth and it's falsified a bit and maybe there's, yeah. and there are issues that, that. I'm a legacy hire. Right? Yeah, we got to do something about these. They're polluting our minds. Whereas mm-hmm. the coal companies is polluting our, people are dying from the output of this industry. I can just imagine that. That would be, a, well, by, by hand, much more practice than mine. That'd be an amazing little bit of flash fiction. Yeah. Yeah. But see, even just this thing that just happened, I know that not everyone is able to just go there, right? Mm-hmm. Just let their imaginations take hold and say, like, I wonder. Yeah. And that's something I don't take for granted at all. Yeah. I used, I used to, I, and, and I think to a certain degree, I still do. And I think that taking it for granted, I've, I'm trying to teach myself not to take it for granted, but even before that, I feel like I used to, I didn't know what to do with that sense. I'm trying to speak with, with humility. I didn't know how to react to people kind of eh, just like, wait, and wait, what? <laughs> I used to, I, the assumption was that I didn't understand that not everyone thought that way or, or could go to that place. And so it'd be like, yeah, Julian's a weird guy kind of thing. And then I think that sometimes turned into a little bit of resentment, mm-hmm. wanting to conform a little bit in a way. Anyway, yeah. I, I totally blame Montessori school for all this. <laughs> well, I didn't go to Montessori school, so I don't know what I blame for it. But I think, but yeah, I think it's that a little bit of identifying or being identified as, oh, you're part of a band of misfits. Yeah. Yes. That's it. Y'all are the folks who like hang out on the edges of things. Yeah. 
yeah, a particular kind of like curiosity and willingness, like you said, just to, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen? I know that from experience. So let's go there for a bit. And yeah, might feel a little bit weird and, and dangerous, and I'm not sure what the reaction will be, but by now used to it. Well, I've learned that what it sometimes feels like for folks who aren't used to it is it feels reckless and it feels like you're flying by the seat of your pants. And so like now the role that I see myself as taking is being a little bit of that like futures Sherpa, right? To be like, all right, I'm not, by no means am I trying to baby you or hold your hand, but let's walk this together. Like I get, here's the space and the permission and the kind of like the safe space to be able to, to just meander and see what might happen. And that's the thing that I really love about like stories too, because we can, and this is how I actually describe it to folks who operate in the space of like AB testing and like prototypes and stuff like that. I'm like, look, stories are a way to prototype possible futures. Yeah. Totally. Right. Like how cool you can just throw things out there and see how different characters run into one another and how different plot lines might run into one another and how different signals might evolve. And I remember going to a talk, William Gibson had was giving a talk like right around when his newest book came out. I think it was like last year, a year before last. And he was talking about some of his character development. And one of the things he said, he was like, well, I just threw these characters in here and I wanted to see how they, if they would play nice together. And they didn't. And so I killed off one of them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's, it's so, that to me is like how I think about stories in general, right? As there are these, these characters and these like artifacts and these plot lines and they have lives of their own. And my job is to just see where those things go and then translate what that means. And at the same time, so that's super resonant, that at the same time, going at it, not sure where they're going to go. Exactly. And isn't that such a peculiar like thing? It's, so it's, I haven't sketched out. I don't know. This isn't a three-act romantic comedy where it's a boom. I know what's meant to happen at precise timings, which I've heard from yep. screenwriters. Nope. But about minute like 17, this needs to happen. By page 43 of the script, this is where you need to be. It's, I don't know. I'm yep. going to put these two characters together and I'm going to see what unspool and, and, and just blame it all on the muse. Yep. I think, and I think honestly, my, probably my favorite phrase is, I don't know. Yeah. Cause I think, and like being comfortable in that, I think is really important. That's funny. My favorite um, emoji is the shrug. The shrug. <laughs> oh. I don't know. <laughs> There's real value in the not Okay, that's it. First in a series of uh, Futurist Talking to Futurist on Zoom. Please do consider supporting the podcast. Every little bit helps. You can do so over at patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. Thanks for listening. Seriously, thank you. Love you. I'm Julian, and I'm out.